Welcome to The Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of The Sendcast. We are here to help improve knowledge around SEND in a way that fits in with very busy lives. We created The Sendcast to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND and to help staff be more aware of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on The Sendcast we have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And today we have Joanna Grace, who has come back to talk about sensory communication and its relevance. Now, Joanna Grace is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, so hopefully she does know what she's talking about, and she really does. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We help schools show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. If you cannot show progress, we are here to help. Over the last few years, we've created this podcast and we've also created Train for Education, our online CPD platform that is easy to access, affordable and always available. Train for Education started a couple of years with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well. You can find out about everything we do here at B Squared on our website, which is www.bsquared.co.uk. You can book a free online meeting with us to take you through any of our products or answer any questions you have. And you'll find links to that in the show notes. And if you're interested in the virtual Send conference, at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing exclusive Sendcast discount code. So keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing sensory communication and how it can support people. I'm discussing this topic with Joe Grace. Joe is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the Sensory Projects. Joe has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions, age from birth to infinity and beyond. <laughs> We've moved on from 87 and 88 to infinity and beyond. So welcome to the show, Joe. Hi. When most of us think communication, we are thinking of the reading, the writing, the listening, and the speaking. And we've discussed sensory stories before, and you are a sensory specialist. So what is sensory communication? Well, it's something that I started to think about in response to hearing people describe behavior as being sensory. So you have this thing where and I've got it, I've got it in my head from different groups. You'll get you'll get professionals going, Oh, it's sensory. And I should I should background that with I once had a job where I inspected schools for their provision for children with special educational needs and disabilities. And I wasn't a part of HMI or Ofsted because I don't look serious enough. I was part of one of those one day when I do look serious, maybe I'll I'll do that. But I was a part of one of those teams that takes over failing schools. So I would go into these schools where they were doing spectacularly badly. And they would have a child that was, you know, overturning tables or hitting out randomly. Do, do it, it was big, you know, doing some form of big behaviour. And the teacher or the teaching assistant would go, yeah, they said it's sensory. <laughs> like it's like an ex What they meant was some wet-eyed do-gooding liberal such as yourself has given this naughty child an excuse. And the excuse is sensory and it was it was said in a tone that was like sensory and then I've also seen it so I get to work with some incredible special schools just amazing provisions 
And it's something that I've bumped into occasionally in there, in that you'll have a situation, and again, you'll have a child that's doing something that's quite extraordinary, you know, not a behaviour that you would consider normal, something quite extreme. Um, And the teacher or the staff around them will say, oh, it's sensory. And it's it's the same explanation, but it's it's given in a different tone. The first one is like a sensory, apparently. And this one is like a really confident, yeah, it's sensory. He does that because it's it's sensory. And you're like, well, good. That's that's a good start point. <laughs> but but nothing's happening after that. And then the last group of people that I've heard say this are the parents of children who are producing these behaviors. And these are parents who have incredibly precious children who they love and whom they know are good and and their child goes to school and then when they're at school they produce one of these behaviors so they're they're lovely precious fundamentally good little person will bite somebody or upend the tables or you know hurt somebody and and they'll say to you they they said it's it's sensory and their that way of saying is like a searching for the because they they know that their child isn't bad and they don't understand why their child is producing this you know this sudden extreme behavior and somebody will have said oh it's sensory and they're just like well what is this you know hanging on to this rope of like hope that there's some understanding at the end of it like it's sensory and when you look at, so that's the start point is, yes, the behaviour will be coming from a sensory cause. And when you have behaviour that's coming from a sensory cause like that, it's often very big and dramatic, or it'll be low level and niggly. It's like to the two extremes, it'd be like an ongoing pestery thing or like a big meltdown, breakout, crash, bang, wallop sort of situation. And when you have that situation how you respond also needs to be sensory because in that moment of overwhelm or panic or shutdown or you know that that heightened situation that that child is in they don't have access to all the other communication systems even if ordinarily they're great at it in that moment the way that you communicate with them needs to be at a sensory level too and so I talk about sensory communication and and it's it's partly about understanding how that moment happens and so that's things like looking at the background looking at the registry of experience looking at how they identify their issues how they solve their issues and how they express those issues but it's also looking at how we can communicate into that situation using sensory communication strategies okay (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing you're going sensory communication and in my head i'm going you're going to make them a cup of coffee and let them smell it no okay so (laughs) so imagine i'm I'm being a i'm being a real muggle here (laughs) no that's fine because i i'm thinking i've just gone i've just like bullet pointed you like half a day's worth of chat and that pause was me thinking which one of those things I've just said would they like me to talk about? <laughs> that's what is that sense? It's like, yeah, and literally, it makes sense that if this is it, but I'm actually going, but what is that? What yeah. is it you do? Because you're talking about communicating via the senses. Yeah. And I'm thinking, 
and, I, and I've done some stuff before, and we talked about lower arousal. And I'm going, is there some sort of yeah, link up with this? There, definitely, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. So, what is it? You're not making them a coffee, obviously. You sort of might be. It, what you have to recognize is that in that moment, and we're talking about those extreme situations where children are doing those big behaviors, big, and they are communicating a high level of distress with those behaviors. And that distress could well be coming from the sensory differences and the sensory processing experience that that person is having. But in that moment, that explosive moment, they are in that heightened fight, flight, fawn, flop situation. And so when you're in that state, your the chemicals that run through your brain change the way your brain processes information. So one of the first things that happens is that you lose the ability to process spoken language because you're in that reactive state and it's an animalistic state that's there biologically to ensure your survival. So when the monster pops out at you, you don't need to be thinking about, you know, what somebody's saying. You need to be killing the monster or running away from the monster. So you lose access to language processing. So all of the things that might get said around that child, like put the chair down, don't do that. If you do that, you'll get a detention. If they can't physically process language at that time, there's no point in saying them at all. or There's no use to saying them. And that could be a child who ordinarily can process language just fine. It's when they hit that heightened state, you lose access to language processing. You also lose access to the ability to lay down memories. So it's not a state in which you can learn because your brain prioritizes all its attention on the fight the monster or run away from the monster. It's not worrying. It doesn't want to remember the experience with the monster. It's not fussed about memory. So you can't let, I remember one of those schools that I went to when I was an inspector, they'd got a child in that setting who was regularly producing some extremely communicative behavior. And the teacher in that situation said the trouble with children like so-and-so is that they just don't learn you can tell them till they're blue in the face and it never changes and you're like yeah because when you're telling them not to do that you're telling them at a, at a moment in time where they literally physically cannot learn so no they won't learn because it's not possible yes at other times when they're not in that heightened state they can learn and remember stuff and take in but in that moment when they're in that excited you know fight or flight state they can't learn another thing that it shuts down is your access to memories because it doesn't need you worrying about the past it needs you focusing on the current situation it needs you right there bang in the present so you kill the monster or run away from the monster so you can't say oh do you remember last time that you threw the chair you lost all your playtimes for a week and that was a bad idea wasn't it maybe you don't want to throw the chair this time because they can't they can't remember they can't go back into their memories that excitement of being in that fight or flight response traps you in the present moment so you don't put things down into memory and you don't retrieve things from memory you don't process language and the other thing that you don't have recourse to is your emotional processing centers so I used to support children with special educational needs in a secondary school I was a teaching assistant I loved it and I did I loved it so much I would have stayed but it's not enough money to live off. I had to do something else. But one of the young men that I supported there, he was day to day, he was just an average member of the class. And then every once in a while, he would snap 
and do something spectacularly violent and beyond the realms of you know hitting people and biting people i won't i won't say things that he did in case that identifies him but he would do these sort of sudden out of nowhere acts of spectacular violence and the gossip in the staff room was it was around they, they would say things like oh i think he's a psycho because he went really kind of blank and calm he didn't look like he was feeling angry or he was feeling aggressive he just went really blank and then he would do something horrific and one of the things that shuts down when you're in that heightened state is your emotional processing and so the blankness that we were witnessing was his lack of emotional content he he didn't feel anything as he did those things because he was in that panicked state and so you can't also sort of say to children if you do that you'll make so and so sad or you know you're frightening people by doing that because they don't have an emotional language in that time and it's it's a really hard thing to appreciate because you know, like 5 minutes before they were able to process language they could think about their memories they could let they could learn new stuff and they had a rich emotional landscape it's when that trigger happens and you get pushed over into that fight or flight landscape you become I was going to say a primitive being, but you are relying on those primitive parts of your cognitive landscape that enable you to spot the monster or run away from the monster. And so the only input that we can put in there is at a perceptual level. So it's at a, a sensory level. It's like our consciousness, your consciousness is gone. It's just your subconscious yeah. is doing this. It's just reacting. All that stuff you don't know you're doing, it's doing without any conscious control. It's like you're kind of, you're not there. Yeah, it can actually, it can really help to imagine it as an animal because we're using the animal parts of our brain as we do this. So like if you imagine a cat in an alleyway and it's just heard a noise that signals danger. So it's just had a sensory experience that tells it that it's in danger. And that's why at the start, the, the list of things that I went through was with reference to people who process sensory information differently. Because what triggers you into that state of fight or flight is, is quite significant. And if you've been pushed in there from a sensory cause, you know, if at a sensory level you think you're in danger, there's very little arguing with that. There is no arguing with that because the information that we get from our senses is primary. It trumps all of the other information that we have. So if our senses, you hear it in our language, you just frowned at me as I said that. You like you say things like, I saw it with my own eyes or I heard it for myself. And, and those things mean it's it's true, you know. And if you were if there was somebody standing in front of you that you could see and you were talking to, you would believe that they were there. Even if I could explain to you why they are not there, you know, if I, if I could prove to you that they were not, if you can see them, that they're there and you can hear them, then they're there. You know, your, your sensory information beats all the other information in your brain. And so if something sensory triggers you into that state of fight or flight, there's no discussion that can be had if your senses tell you you're in danger you're in danger and so that cat in the alleyway that's just had a sensory experience that tells it that it's in so it's like it's just heard a dog bark that's that's the mapping situation isn't it that cat has just heard that, that a dog bark and it's gone into high alert and it's what you could do in response to that animal self to help them to feel calm again so the first thing is 
you wouldn't walk directly up to the cat, would you? Like if you walk straight at it, it's going to panic because that's going to register as an attack. And so when you have the child wielding the chair over its head, if you, you want to walk straight towards them because you want to get the chair and you want to make everything safe. And actually that direct approach will signal greater danger. You know, you, now they're being attacked. Because although they know you. Yeah. Yeah, as you've just said, that part of their brain has shut down. So even if, like, we, I've got a cat, and when they come flying in the cat flap because something's chasing them, and you go to pick them up, yeah, like, who are you? Who are you? Why? Whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, animal in a trap situation. You'll bite the hand that comes to set you free. I, I remember an experience that I had with a different child in a different school where the phrase that the teacher said to me was, please, could you take the scaffolding pole off him? <laughs> and he'd managed... There was some building work outside the school and he'd got very angry and he'd managed to bring a six foot scaffolding pole into maths and he was wielding it above his head. And you think, like, obviously, like if, if we could take the scaffolding pole off him, this would solve the problem. But if I directly approach him, if I go straight for him and he's got that pole, he's very clear. It's not we're not discussing whether this kid is upset. He's very clearly upset. If I go direct for him, the most likely outcome is that I get hit with that scaffolding pole. I definitely am not capable. Even if I was capable, this is another thing, isn't it? Even if I was capable ordinarily of overpowering him physically, in that moment with those hormones going through his body, it's very unlikely that you would be because you get this burst of like survival hormones and they make, they say like they get so much stronger and you do because that yep. adrenaline will make you stronger. My response to the teacher was, I suggest we take the rest of the class outside. So the rest of maths left maths and then me and chap with the scaffolding pole were left in maths on our own. And it's a different situation. You know, if you just, sat with the cat but didn't approach it probably didn't look at it straight on the cat would sense a presence and then you have to decide what sort of presence the cat is sensing you know is the cat sensing an agitated presence is the cat sensing a frightened presence is the cat sensing an angry presence you you've got to try and exude you know like be calm be calm <laughs> It's a tricky. All people who can do those lovely things like grounding themselves and taking a deep breath and bringing their energy levels down, that will make a difference to those situations because those things, those states in your own body are communicated at a micro level between bodies. And this is something I think we talked about in a different podcast. There is our bodies fall into sync with the bodies around us. It's not just like hippie daftness it's like when you walk down the street you fall into step with the person you're walking with that's a, a big example but there's lots of little micro ways that we do this and so if you're around somebody you sort of know it yourself from like working alongside people like if, if somebody that you're working alongside is a bit agitated and stressed and het up that sort of rubs off on you and you feel a bit uncomfortable around them whereas if they're sat there and they're really like in the zone and concentrated that's an easier person to be around so you're in that situation and you're you're trying to manifest in your own person what you're hoping to translate into the other person so, so back to the cat there's the cat in the alley it's just had a signal that it's in danger you don't walk straight up to it the other thing you wouldn't do is shout at it because if you if you put a loud noise into that situation that's also going to signal more danger isn't it so you, yeah basically when I'm 
thinking about sensory communication, I would go through each of the sensory systems that we use. And that's a slippery slope for me because because I generally run to seven, but there's a few more. But if you just stick to the famous five and go through what the what an agitated response would be and what a calming response would be. So at an auditory level, you definitely wouldn't shout, which is your instinct when you see them pick up the no, stop, don't, stop. Oh, yeah. Those sorts of loud, abrupt noises are what we spontaneously do in response to that situation. No noise is a good option. But actually, if you were looking to create a calming noise, you want to create a sort of, you want a white noise landscape, ideally. So you think about how we calm small children when we go, shh, that is generating a white noise with our voice. So actually, if you say things, but you say them low and soft and slow, you can create an auditory environment that is more calming than it is agitating and you might be saying things like put the scaffolding pole down (laughs) but the the words aren't going to do anything they're just just so that you know why you're saying the thing they're just the the reason to make the noise quite often some of the stuff that you say is is said for the benefit of other people as well isn't it it's like it is wrong to hit people with scaffolding poles it's something that everybody can learn and there will be people witnessing this who that might be useful to, but you mustn't mistake your words as an act of communication in that experience. It's the sound that you're creating is the communication. Do you want to keep going, more senses? Well, I, what I'm doing, I'm kind of picturing like you're out camping, obviously not in England, and a grizzly bear comes yeah. up. You can either go for the trying to scare it away with big movements and run yeah. up to it and hope that this giant thing much bigger than you will run off. Yeah. Or you're kind of, you'll just go quite quiet and still and try to be perceived as not a threat and not interesting either. Yeah. And I'm kind of here, I'm kind of feeling that sort of similarity in this, that they are primal. They're in that Mm. zone. Yeah, that's it. You're thinking about those things. So touch is a really useful one. I was talking about sensory communication at an event that was it, it had got an amazing set of delegates it got teachers from mainstream and special schools teaching assistants as well it had social workers and then it had the staff from specialist agencies and people from cams and it just just an extraordinary range of delegates and i was a workshop and i was a bit daunted because i was thinking these like some of these people are super qualified they don't need to be they don't need me teaching them to suck eggs and and no doubt there's people in the room who know way more than me about this and I might say something wrong you know they might put their hand up and go actually no that's not true and then this will be terribly embarrassing so I was quite nervous about the presentation and I was particularly nervous I had to do it several times on the second run through one of the organizers said oh you've got I can't remember the lady's name you've got Jackie in on on your session this afternoon and I got told that because that Jackie had chosen my session was like a badge of honor like this person Jackie had chosen to come to my session and they said and she ran a provision and it was a really unusual provision it was a provision for teenage families where one of the parents had been convicted of GBH and they had a baby under a year old so basically you had to be like a, a 16 and a 17 year old who'd got together and had a baby and then one of you had committed some very violent crime 
And in an unusual act of insight, the justice system had recognised that rather than separating these young families and criminalising one half of their parents, that there would be a better long-term outcome for these little babies if they supported those new young families in learning how to cope with life better. And so they would be put into this institution that was populated by other young teenage families. So what you have is a, a building that houses a bunch of sort of 16, 17, 18 year olds who are all completely sleep deprived because they've all got like a six month old baby and half of them are violent. <laughs> you know, or more than half of them are violent. And she said it's quite a challenging landscape to work in. He's like, God, yes, that would be good. She's just so volatile. And I was talking about sensory communication. And, and one of the things that I say, like I'm about to say to you, is that if you can touch people, touch is an incredibly communicative act. And those micro communications between our bodies that I was talking about before when you when you touch somebody it's it's like a direct plug-in you you can yeah. it's a much quicker transmission of those emotions i think the only time that people people encounter it in day-to-day -day life is with sexual attraction when somebody that fancies them touches them and they go oh it's electric it's that same thing that they're experiencing it's that it's the other person like really fancies you and they touch you it's electric because you you feel that emotion that you know that setup of their body through that touch and so I was saying you know it, it can be a good idea to touch people and that's a really tricky one in an education landscape because obviously you don't go around going touch children because it sounds really wrong and it sounds like it would be a safeguarding issue but actually compassionate nurturing touch is really steadying and reassuring and will de-escalate a situation it's just about how you provide it because you know you imagine my child with the scaffolding pole above his head and I can't walk straight towards him how on earth am I going to get so I can touch him <laughs> You're not going to beckon him over for a cuddle. I, and so I was saying, you know, if you have the opportunity to to touch them, just, you know, it can just be like a hand on the shoulder. It doesn't need to be, you definitely don't want to be grabbing or pulling or doing anything that could be misconstrued in a touch landscape to be aggressive. And so I, I did this presentation to this mixed audience with Jackie in the audience. And as everybody left, Jackie stayed behind. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, She's going to call me out. She's she's it's, it's really good of her to wait until everybody else has left to embarrass me about whatever it was that I said that was inaccurate. And, uh, and so I <laughs> waited until everybody had gone. And she came up to me and she said, I just wanted to have a word with you. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> she said, I just wanted to say like, it was really good. And that thing you said about touch, that's something that we use all the time in our setting. And, and I was so relieved. And then she went on to explain. She said, they, they quite often had situations where there were outbursts and disagreements between the families. And the a lot of times these would end with people storming off, which was considered to be good. So they didn't want to get into the fight. So, you know, somebody would slam a door and, and walk out of the building and storm off. And she said, now outside, we've got loads of picnic benches. And when they storm off, they storm off, they're really agitated and they'll sort of stomp about for a bit and they'll end up sitting on one of the picnic benches. And she said, and what I do is I just go and sit down on the same side of the bench to them and I just get myself, you know, a bit closer 
until the tops of our arms are touching. And she said, it's that moment when the top of my, you like the bit of skin where you'd get a tattoo on your shoulder, when that touches theirs, she said, it's like, that's what diffuses it. She said, that's the moment when they start explaining what the emotions were that they felt and why they were stressed and how they're sorry about what they did. And that's the moment that it changes around is, is when you can give that touch. But it obviously only works if what you're communicating through your touch is, is the right. if what you're communicating through your touch is like, I can't believe you've done this again. If you were just, <laughs> then, then it doesn't work. So you have to be, Jackie was extraordinary. You have to be like Jackie and manifest the calm. <laughs> So basically, touch isn't the first one we go for. <laughs> we don't run in there trying to hug them. It is more a case of try these other things, sit nearby, show that you aren't a danger. Mm. And then hopefully at some point you can move closer. Yeah. Um, and it might be after they'd stormed off. So she was doing yeah. that a little, the little way in. And it might be you're just kind of putting your hand near theirs. Yeah. And maybe just touching it with your finger. I, yeah, there's things like you can do to sort of sit there and go, look, there's a little hand here. You can hold it if you want. There are things like that, I suppose, you can do. So you're not, as you said, you're not kind of grabbing them, no. which they could, could confuse the it for a hug or you're trying to grapple me to the ground. It's kind of a, it's a, a light touch. It's kind of a small touch. Yeah, I think the thing to do is, it, the, the, the key thing to do is in that moment, recognize that all the other strategies that you use, which are all really good, and valid and you might have lovely behavior policy plans and consequence charts and all of this stuff they're all fine but they won't work in this moment in this moment what you've got is the senses and so you're going through what sensory support you can offer them but considering the landscape around them is really good as well because if you've got you know if that cat's in the alleyway and there's loads of dogs barking that's not going to you know do any if there's loads of children around them who are going he didn't that's more noise that's more agitation so what can you do about that landscape and even down to the visual landscape because if you're in an environment that's visually stimulating and you think about go back to thinking about it as an animal who's who's feeling that they're under attack if you're in a busy visual landscape and you're looking for the danger, it could be over there and it could be over there and it could be that and it could be that. It, there's lots of things that you've got to worry about. If you're in a blank visual landscape, it's you don't you can just see what's there and it's and it's fine. So being able to take children from the visually cluttered classroom environment into an office space that's relatively bland, or better yet, outside. Because if you want a visual landscape that offers calming to the to the visual systems, we've been living in concrete boxes in for the blink of an eye in terms of our development. Our site is at a primitive level wired for the natural world. So being in a landscape where there are greens and browns and blues is more visually calming than being in you know, a nicely designed primary school classroom. That's quite an interesting, I, I, I've got to go back to this, the fact that the government did see sense in supporting rather than punishing. Yeah. Those, that was fascinating. Then you went, and they're all together, I'm going, yeah. okay, maybe not, but actually maybe. a similar thing to you, yeah. Yeah, so it's like probably very, yeah, the fact that people can relate to you and you can see that, yeah, I'm not alone, I'm not, there's lots of positives. But I just want to go back to who you're going to use this with. Because 
it's not what I'm saying. You're not going to use this on one in a thousand people. This whole sensory communication. In theory, this is anyone who is having yeah an incident. Yeah, I don't call it an incident. That's what we like calling it in schools. Isn't it? We have an incident, yeah. and it's literally sort of going. And I, I've there was a boy in my daughter's school when they were at a party. The smoke machine was on, but the people who had the smoke machine didn't tell the people who ran the buildings. So the fire alarm was still on. Boy was happy till the fire alarm went off. So we had the music, smoke alarm, smoke going. It was really noisy, and you could just see him just kind of going. Oh, he couldn't cope. Mm-hmm. Now we're not we're not even at the close to this level. He was still able to perceive, but it was. I I, I just literally going. I can't take you outside. Your mum's not here, and we're literally going to walk out onto the street. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just I just kept repeating the same thing again and again. And I it kind of said, I need you to take my hand. And it, I know we're not in the same zone as we what you're talking about yeah. here, but it is understanding when when you're in this heightened state, your processing slows down. Your, as you said, your memories, kind of your logic, all disappears. And we all know this because we all say, when you're angry, you'll say something you'll regret. Yeah, yeah. How do you say something you'll regret? Your logic should stop you. It's because you're in this moment, you're overwhelmed. That part of your memory, your memory's bit's gone. Yeah. So I suppose I think about this for the children and and adults as well, because I work in adult care too, for whom they've lost all access to the other, you know, opportunities to communicate and to understand their situation because of the extreme nature, because of those moments with scaffolding poles but these communication strategies that we're talking about here are obviously still there when you can use language these are always there and so these are useful in any situation where you're dealing with somebody who's stressed regardless of if they're so stressed that they can no longer process language and things like that I watch I I read a lot of research and I have a lot of professional experience and all of that I also watch a lot of bad television and so you for like a counter example all the fly on the wall police documentaries where they run up to the person who's you know doing some crime and go calm down they run straight for them and then they yell it at them that never calmed anybody down did it I've just thought of a new series it's just Joe Grace commentates <laughs> Please camera action. Oh, Let's just pause this here. And we'll just spend half an hour on this three second clip. I think, I honestly think some of those inter- police interceptors, if they spent like a couple of weeks in a special school, could learn skills for dealing with those incidents that would transform the way that it happens in, in real life. But yeah, these communicate, these sensory communication strategies are useful for anybody, you know, at, at any level it's just that if you're still able to reason you know if if you're upset because he stole your dinner money and you're still at a level where you can go he's given it back now and he said sorry that will get you down from the upset and you you don't need so much of the I'm talking to you in a calm voice because you're stressed you might just give get me my money back he's nicked my money you know it's still relevant the other strategies are still relevant there and I said at the start that it it's if you are tipped into that situation through a sensory cause rather than through he stole my dinner money type cause, then it's much harder to stop it from happening. You know, if, you, if you're the child and you see that the other kid has just run off with your dinner money, you're getting stressed because you understand a situation. You understand that that's your money and he's got it and he's run away with it. And you can still use your understanding to go, 
oh, if I get really angry with him and hit him, the teachers will be cross with me. I should go and tell the teachers that he's stolen my dinner money and I should sort it out like this because you've still got that access. Yeah. But if what starts you being stressed comes from a sensory level, you haven't got any sort of backward access because it's just going to hit you at a sensory level straight away. And that's most often people who experience the world in a sensorily different way. So people who've got sensory processing differences or disabilities, and that's a lot of the neurodivergent population. They, It's not that there's a difference in their response. It's that because they're processing sensory information differently, they're more likely to encounter a sensory experience that is too much or too big or flips them out. But anybody could. And I was doing, I was talking about this at, at an event where you, you've got a big room full of people and you get keynote speakers. And I was the second keynote speaker of the day and I had 20 minutes to talk about this. And we are 36 minutes in. So you can imagine how challenging I find being given 20 minutes to talk about something. Plus, the introduction to me takes at least 10 minutes now, doesn't it, with that list of things that I do. So I was, I was thinking before I went, how can I make this point quickly in a way that people will, will tangibly get? And I came up with a plan. I thought, I know, I can demonstrate to them that everybody reacts to a sensory experience that signals danger at this sort of primitive level. And the way that I'll do that is I'll give them one of these experiences. And I thought, what would what would work for like a general audience of 200 teachers? What could I do? I thought a gunshot. That would definitely be a sound experience that would trigger us all into like a fight or flight response. If a gun goes off in the auditorium, you're not going to be thinking, oh, I wonder why they did. You're going to think panic. You're just, <laughs> just going to straight panic. Yes. And so I said, all right, how do, because I do a lot of sensory stuff. And I've got a shed full of sensory resources. So I was thinking, okay, I must be able to make a gunshot. And I figured out that if I got a really large balloon and like popped it from the back of the room. So I was going to get one of the, like the people that stand around and sort the teas and coffees. And I was going to get them this giant balloon. And just as I got up to the lectern on the stage, I was going to get them to pop the balloon. That was my plan. That was my plan for about, you know, 20 minutes. And then I thought, what, what will happen if I <laughs> traumatize the whole audience? You know, and also when I pop the balloon, every, everybody's going to have that response. They're all going to be super heightened and then it's going to be revealed that it's a balloon and they're all going to go, oh, <laughs> oh, it's funny. That was just a balloon. <laughs> and they're going to understand. But it's not going to change the chemistry in their brain. Their brain will still be going, I haven't written my will yet. I didn't say goodbye to my loved ones. I they're not going to hear anything that I say from that point on, because when you have that trigger, those those shutdowns, the, the processing of language, the access to emotions, the laying down of memory, the remembering stuff. I wanted them to remember what I was going to say because I only had 20 minutes. So I was trying to say something useful in it. All goes and it doesn't come back instantly. It comes back very slowly and it comes back over time. So another thing that we do in settings could be adjusted is we can perpetuate those agitated states. So the guy with the scaffolding pole I did get the scaffolding pole off him after about 20 minutes of us being in the room together. We, He and I had a good like working relationship. We, I got the pole off him and then I was obliged to take him to the, the set. There was a room in the school. These rooms have euphemistic names. It's the room where they send the children like this child. I was, I was to take him down there and we took him down there and the lady who ran this room was very good. She got him a sugary cup of tea, which thinking about the sensory landscape 
that's your taste communication of safety is you know sweet hot buttered toast that sort of she, she was fine she gave him a sugary cup of tea and then the head of the department the maths department because it was maths that he'd got the scaffolding pole into the head of the maths department came down to have a yell at him to go you don't bring you don't bring stuff like that into my classroom i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell you and we got him way back up heightened again like glad we'd left the pole behind in the other room like this he's he was he was coming down and then he's back up again and then we had the head of year came in to do a repeat performance and then we had a good like hour hour and a half break and we got the head of the school came in and and we between the senior management team of that school they kept that child in an agitated state where he couldn't learn couldn't process we we couldn't have any of the you know how did you get into that situation where you were angry and had the scaffolding pole what could you have done differently what might you do differently next time how could, we couldn't we couldn't do anything to support him or make that situation better all we did was keep him agitated and the idea was that he should be punished because he'd done a really bad thing. And if you look at school behaviour management policies, a lot of them are about what happens after the behaviour. You know, and after the behaviour, if you do this bad once, this will happen to you. And if you do this bad twice, then this will happen to you. And if you do this bad three times, then this will happen to you. And you will be punished in a variety of ways. Punished sounds like a it's like a trigger word, isn't it? Because we we don't hit children with sticks anymore. We just use emotional abuse instead now. It's much more sophisticated. But if if punishing children sorted it out, you know, prisons would be empty. It, it doesn't, all that punishing children does is create a sort of sense of equality between people seeking vengeance. Like they did a bad thing, I did a bad thing, now we're even. It doesn't fix anything. If your aim is to sort out that problem because remember that communication that behavior is a communication and the communication is the child saying I've got a problem and if you figure out what the problem was that they had and you help them to solve that you end up with a much more peaceful <laughs> behavior landscape in school but if all you're dealing with is you know matching the problem that they caused you with a problem that you can cause them it just rolls on and it and it keeps everybody entertained. I, I never I never I never get the point of somebody who shouting is something you do in the moment based on your emotions. Yeah. It's kind of you got somewhere and you're outbursting. Yeah. yeah. You shout in that situation. When you literally have found out something's happened and you walk across halfway across the school, <laughs> walk into this room and then start shouting. I'm literally going. I mean, sorry, I, what, I, 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 I've never understood the reason. Now, I personally have caused lots of teachers to shout at me at my time when I was at school. And problem for that's the thing. I think what some people, teachers think, they think they're scary. For me, inside, I was laughing at them because my head said, is this all you've got? But that's a whole other thing to go into. Yeah. But it is this person walking in and shouting at them. I'm sitting there going, and I, I added this to my mum. She was doing, she would, I was taller than her. She tried to smack me. I'm going, what is this trying to achieve? <laughs> and there wasn't an answer. And I think when you asked that math head of maths, yeah, by walking in here and shouting, what were you trying to achieve? And his answer might be just, well, if you unpeel it back, is well, it's what we've always done. Or it's me showing that you don't do this to yeah. one of my members of staff. It's that sort of thing. It's like none of them were doing it maliciously. They 
a big thing had happened. You know, it was a big deal that this kid had got a scaffolding pole into school. It wasn't a day-to-day experience. It was big and it was serious. And they needed to mark how big and how serious it was with their response. And the only skill set that they had for doing that was tone of voice, you know, and, and threats to phone your parents. Because that's all that's there is you know and and it's not because they were careless people or people who wanted to make that child's life worse it's because these aren't things that you just know these are things that you learn and you only learn them if you get the opportunity to learn them and they don't have access to training and cpd that has those sorts of insights and so they go with what they've got and what they were trying to do was it's the same thing isn't it they produced a behavior based on the skill set that they had. They were trying to solve the problem that they'd experienced. It's exactly the same as the child. And that's that's the set of skills that they had. And it's not, you know, there are better ones that you can have, but you only have them if people take the time to teach them to you and if your settings support you in, in learning them. I, I just find it interesting. You see it in films and rubbish TV and it's, you see it in real life that, so if you told me, Joe, that, oh, blah, 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 and this person did this, and then what I do is I run out of the room, I slam the door, and I go and punch that person, mm-hmm. or I shout at them. It's like, well, no, Joe's told me she needs help. So what I've done is I've walked off and left Joe and then punched the person who made her feel rubbish. <laughs> Why didn't I just help Joe? <laughs> do, you, do you remember the Jamie Bulger case? In, yes. So the Jamie Bulger case was an extraordinary and awful case where two, like an eight and a nine-year-old boy, I can't remember their ages, but two young boys kidnapped a small toddler and tortured him and did horrible things to him. And yep. those two young boys were persecuted in the British justice system. They were put in prison. I think they're probably still in prison. I remember there being something about one of them was going to be let out. And, you know, they were demonized in our newspapers. They were evil. They were evil incarnate. You know, how could, you know, and they did awful things. They did really, really awful things. It was a horrific case. There was a very similar case in the, I think it was in the Netherlands at the same time where children young children, nine or 10 years old, perpetuated acts of extreme violence against another younger child. And the response was totally different. The response was, oh my goodness, what have we done as a community to let these children down such that they're in a situation where they're, you know, doing this? These two children, the 10-year-olds, need to be embedded in our community. They need to have more love and support and care from the adult world around them. And the villages that those children were from took them back, took ownership of them, spent extra time and effort, you know, caring for them. And they grew, they didn't get criminalized. They they got to live, you know, normal lives. And then you hear in your head, you hear people going, but what they did to that boy was wrong and they deserved to suffer for it. And our system is the system that offers that suffering. And that system was the system that offered the repair. And what we have in our own experience and our own landscapes is mostly just the like, if you do something bad, I will shout at you. And if you do something really bad, I might smack you. And that's it. It's not a very sophisticated set of understanding. And in education, our response to these things is also educative about what the response should be. So I I know some secondary schools where there'll be like 
there'll be a teacher that is the teacher that they give the bad classes to. You're like, oh, we'll put that group with Dr. Giles because because Dr. Giles is built like a brick, you know, and he means it. And when he shouts, you know it. And what you teach through that is that if you are bigger, you're in charge. If you are scarier, you're in charge. If you shout louder, you're in charge. And is that a lesson that we want to be teaching through life? Because we're educators as well. No, that's the thing. I think a lot of it, and I've, done, I've tried with a lot of my children of trying to explain, they call it dad lectures. It's like, oh God, another <laughs> one. But it's like, I'd bet you prefer this to kind of what other options are. But it is, it helps them. And generally, we're quite lucky. We, we sometimes... We sometimes have to repeat the same lecture, but generally it moves on. Yeah, I had these lectures as a child. I remember being explained to in great detail why I should. I, and in the end, I'd just be like, just tell me, just tell me what you want me to do. Stop talking, just tell me. Well, it wasn't, I generally, I'm asking them. They call it a lecture, but the first half of me trying to work out kind of how do we get here? Do you, which bits are you not sure of? And then we'll, go, we'll get them and they go, well, I did this and I did this. And then what happened? And kind of generally we move on because I'm showing support and I'm showing understanding rather than just telling them because I said so, or we don't do that and I'll just be angry. And then going, but I did that because of a very valid reason (laughs) and I'm wrong. But you told me in the RE thing, if this happens, I should do this, which is what I've just done. But now you've shouted at me because I did do I kind of try and sit there and go, and there are times when my daughter's done something. My daughter in year seven starts at secondary school and in the first week gets her first attention. Wow. I come home and she looks at me and she bursts into tears. And I'm thinking, what, did you not do your homework? I I think I'd be secretly excited if my boy... I'm literally thinking, what have you done? What have you done? My girl, my little girl, what have you done? And then she tried, and you just know from your own experiences when someone's just trying to make a story Mm. up. And she's trying to tell me, and she's saying all these words, and I'm listening. <laughs> I went, so you punched a boy. <laughs> no, I fell, and my face <laughs> hit his, my hand hit his face. I went, right, so what, what happened? And basically, some boy was picking on her friend who was smaller and more scared, and my daughter stood up, and I'm then it ended up and punching him. And I went, okay, I don't condone this, but I high-fived her. <laughs> I mean, that is condoning. It is. It is. But it, I sat there. I didn't sit there. I went, you know, you can't do that. I'm so proud of you for standing up for your friend. But no, don't do the physical that, stuff. That bit there, that's a really good thing that we can do is when we are dealing with it in language, we can, what you've done is you recognize the function of her behavior. So you've said, I see that this is what you were trying to achieve. You know, I see that you were trying to solve this problem and it is valid and right that you try and solve this problem. I approve your effort. I do not improve your, approve your method. It's like yes. behavior is a, a skill that children learn. And like I, I do it when I've got a training day that I run that's called Exploring the Impact of the Senses on Behavior, which does what it says on the tin. And at the start of that day, I get I show people a little math math sum that's been done wrong. And I get them to imagine a child who's just done that sum wrong and what they would want to happen to the child. And you get a discussion going. But the general consensus is you want the child to be told that they got the sum wrong. 
You want the child to be praised for the effort that they made in trying to solve the sum and you want to teach the child how to do the sum right. And behaviour is exactly the same. But when children go to school and they get their behaviour wrong, they definitely get told that they got it wrong and then they get punished for getting it wrong. And it's not, you know, they certainly do not get praised for making an effort because they made an effort with their behaviour. That behaviour took something. They were trying to do a thing. It's just we didn't approve of the method that they used to try. And they very rarely get taught how to... We're, we're getting better at that one. We're getting better at going, here's what you could have done. But the thing that you did in that conversation with your daughter where you go, I recognise what you were trying to do, and that's a valid thing, but you shouldn't have done it like that. <laughs> that's a good tactic. I, I just basically, she was, she was on the verge of tears. I was like, well, yeah, you really shouldn't have, but I kind of got to sit there and try and make a connection with you and and it was and it, but the thing is our expectations of children is here's a load of hormones get everything right from now on yeah here's this make the right decision yeah you're literally here's a new experience make the only decision out of 500 you've got to pick the right it is just we are expecting them and if we think of if you're a teacher in a school and you suddenly any job you're in yeah you get given a responsibility for something, you're like, cool. And then life happens and you do not get a chance to anything, do on anything on that. And then a year later, you get pulled up. Yeah, you get pulled up because you haven't done it. And you're like, oh, oh. And you're getting in trouble and you go, okay, I'm going to talk to the union or you get there, somebody involved in. And they go, right, so of course, you haven't done that. Cool. First thing, what training did you receive to do that job? Mm-hmm. You're given the responsibility. What training did you receive? Well, none. Cool. And when you have that, how much time were you given to lead on that? None. So no training and no time to actually try and get your head around it. No. Cool. And the disciplinary goes straight out the window. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite simple. Yeah. You had no training on how to do that. You've had no time to learn how to do that. Therefore, it's completely, you cannot expect that person to be able to do that. Now do the same thing of my daughter is expecting, is trying to stick up for her friend. Yeah. What training has she had <laughs> in the playground on how to stick up for friends against boys? None. Yeah. How much time has she had to learn <laughs> how to stick up for friends, especially like boys, in front of a small girl? Yeah. Yeah. None. So how can I hold my daughter to account? Yeah, and no, the thing I about can't. hormones as well, like if you ask a menopausal woman how your behaviour is with your hormones – or people who are going through hormone therapy for sex change. It's an interesting behavioural landscape. So what my daughter said is highlighted that she needs some training in this area <laughs> and some time. That's how I see the second time. Yeah, now we're, now we're there. Come on. We've done it once. Yeah, you've learned now. I've supported you. We, we're doing it again. Okay, now there's something wrong. But it is. And, and so many times if you look at your children, they will make mistakes. We all make mistakes. How many people listening to this podcast are with their first ever boyfriend or girlfriend? Yeah, most of us aren't. How many might have, when that first of might have gone, yeah, I did that. <laughs> or oh, I shouldn't have done that. Have you done it again? No. It's the same. We all do this. Don't be so, don't have such high expectations for these children to get it right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and the same for the adults, isn't it? Because yeah, 
the reality is it's really easy for somebody like me to sit on a podcast in a in a room on my own and say we should have this lovely sensory approach and therapeutic and mental well-being understanding in response to somebody coming in and messing up your maths lesson with a scaffolding pole but the reality of teaching is that you are dealing you know a secondary school you're dealing with hundreds of children on a daily basis and you you won't have the background insight into each of them and why they're doing things and you couldn't because you're just one person and if your school isn't supporting you through your continued professional development to get access to skills other than just raising your voice and threatening detention then that's something to take to your school and say look, here I am, I am in charge of behaviour for a load of people, Where, where's my training? Where's the time? All that stuff you were just saying, you sound like you're very good at working in organisations. But I just think, I think, the last thing I just want to say, although we talk about sensory communication, let's go back to corporal punishment and shouting and hitting and all those sorts of things, is to me, when I was growing up, they were a known quantity. Yeah, my parents could shout and smack me. And... Yeah, sometimes it had an effect. And then after a while, I got numb to it and it had no effect. And then I went into school and my mum was a teacher, which meant when my mum shouted at me, it was a scary teacher shouting at me. But then I got numb to that. When I went into school and a teacher shouted at me, it had absolutely no effect. But the, the arrogant, as I now realise I was, arrogant part of me is literally giving this teacher a score out of 10 For how good as they're turning red. And I'm literally looking at them going, yeah not that scary I'd, I'd give you a five out of ten and that's the thing so this person is really thinking that they are winning or all this stuff and if and what i was getting from this was nothing i got nothing from that experience you I got didn't... a demonstration that might is right that if i'm bigger than you and i hit you then you yeah. should do what i say and then when you get bigger and you are the stronger person, that's not something that you want somebody to have learned. And you also get an experience of it being combative. It's a very you against them situation. And I don't think teachers go into teaching, I hope they don't, to be against the children. They go into teaching no. to support the children. And when you respond to behaviour in that way, you're, you're, you put yourself on the opposite side to the child you are the them to their us when you try and problem solve what their problem was with them from alongside them that has a more profound effect on their long-term behavior and it's a it's a shared it's like we're in this together i i see that you did that something must be going on for you what you know what is it what's your issues what can we do how can we make this environment easier for you what that's an alongside experience and that's what people that's what people go into teaching for they go into teaching to be robin williams standing on the desk don't they yes yes great film if you haven't seen dead poet society go watch it i love the whole standing on a desk i made my daughter <laughs> stand up not in a classroom in the office she comes into work and stands on the desk and I, I stand on the desk she went wow it looks really different doesn't it I went yeah that's the thing you think you know something but you just see it from a different point of view. And it's a really, it's a great way of doing it in the film where they stand on the desk and they're like, oh, actually, this does look different. I've never noticed that before. But yeah, I do think, I, again, I love the fact I can use my podcast as a complete therapy session with all my guests. And many things have been discussed with various guests. But one I do remember, 
and again what what that person may have meant to impact or empower onto me through this communication and what i received are very two different things is when i got and i wasn't naughty i was just again i didn't think i was really arrogant but i'm just realizing i was just neurotypical <laughs> no neurodiverse not neurotypical neurodiverse wrong one i was neurodiverse and i maybe struggled with things so i got sent out of a lesson and i got sent to sit in another class with the head of maths and i had to do my work in that class and i and i finished it really quickly because it was so easy and she looked at it and she didn't like my handwriting so she tore the page out of the exercise book and told me to do it all again yeah and i'm going what because i'm too good at maths was what i got because i did it too quickly you're upset which is not what she was trying to convey is not the message i was I supposed to receive I, I don't even know what the message no. i was supposed to receive apart from i have power you don't and i think sometimes people can lose and i think it is i think there is a i think we are getting very good at the understanding of the emotional and things like that but i and i sit there and there are teachers who are doing this who fall into this they as you said they inspire to be robin williams carpe diem all that stuff but the pressures that are put on them and the stories i've heard from some schools amazing other schools shouldn't be in the profession anymore and it is because how has this person who went in like that ended up like that and it's generally pressures lack of sport lack of training they so we're reading like the sort of template neurodiver you know you're the neurodivergent boy who caused problems for other people and i'm the neurodivergent girl that sat quietly and caused problems for myself that teacher who ripped out the page of your book there's no way in that moment when she did that that she was feeling that that was a fruitful thing to do there was that feeling that she has as she rips out the page is like a knotted irritated i'll show him type feeling it's not a feeling that when you reflect back on you think oh yeah i I, I did a good bit of teaching today. It's 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 your own emotions causing problems there, isn't it? And what happens is people go into teaching because they want to change the world. They want to support children. They want to create brighter futures. They want to do all those wonderful things. And they know that that's their intention. They know that they're will inside is good they know that they're a human being who is trying to you know make the world a better place and when their experience in their classroom is that they can't do that they know it's not because of them because they know that their intent is pure what what it will be is a as result of the structures around them but where they experience it is in with relation to the children and so they know that they meant well but these children these damn children thwarted them and I, I met a guy in in one of my inspector roles and he was he was referenced by all the other people in the school as being the person to go to if you have he was the most experienced teacher in the school and everybody if they had issues went to this guy to help and so you you think that the school would be doing better this school was failing it was in special measures it was doing atrociously and so I spent time with him and he explained to me, and, and bear in mind, I was the inspector in this conversation. <laughs> so I'm there in a suit with a clipboard. And he said he was in teaching because he loved children. 
and and he wanted to make a difference. And he said, and you wouldn't work in a school like this if you didn't care about the children, because the children here are really, you know, this is a low grade quality of child we've got here. So you'd have to care. And I've been here for 16 years. So I obviously care about the children because I've been here for a long time. So I must care. He said, the trouble is, every once in a while, you just get a bad seed. And there's nothing you can do when you get a child that's just basically what he was saying to me was that some children are just inherently evil. And that in his local community, there'd been an outbreak of these evil children and they just got a lot of them through the school. And he was like, there's no point in dealing with those ones. But but some of the other ones are worth caring. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> there was no malice. It, but it was there was so little understanding and and they had as a school had had no access to support and and all of that but when your emotions become involved in your teaching and your your feeling even if you cover it up you know and you manage to go no dale you know write that out again using your best hand or well done dale you've done all that right but could you write it out again neatly so that i can understand even if as you do the right thing you're feeling inside little yeah <laughs> doesn't work. and so there's a responsibility to your own emotional landscape and that thing that you did earlier with recognizing the function of your daughter's behavior recognizing the purpose behind it is a really useful tool for managing your own emotional response to children's behavior because if you can learn to identify what's what the function of that behavior is and this is something that I explore on the exploring the impact of the senses on behavior day, then you can replace in your mind the function of the behavior for the behavior. So I'll give you an example. If you have a child who is constantly calling out in class and and just stopping the lesson from, so they're not doing anything spectacular. They're just being really irritating. And I get I get people to think about that child and imagine what it's like. And then you say, I don't want any disruptive children in my class because that child is being disruptive. That's what their behavior is doing. It's disruptive. And you, if you, you like you role play and you go, I don't want any disruptive children in my class. And you really mean it. You're like, no, <laughs> people wag their fingers and put their hands on their hip and go, no. And the feeling that you have when you say it is like of a it's a strong feeling. It's like a it's a knotted feeling. And it's like a I know no, my classroom is going to be undisrupted. It's going to be an organized lesson. They will not, I will not tolerate, you know, and there's the beginning of the chat. I will not tolerate any disruption in this classroom, children, bad attention. And then you get people to think about the function of that behavior. And I have different ways of doing this. And there are always, there are different reasons that a child might be you know, doing any number of things. So I'm not saying that this is the function for that sort of behavior, but this is one function of this behavior. That sort of little irritating, bleating out, constant yelping thing. Are we are social animals? And if you imagine us, it's, e it's always easier to imagine like a primitive landscape or an animal landscape to map these sorts of things onto. But if you imagine we're the tribe roaming around the African, you know, the plains of Africa, and we're living off nuts and berries and occasionally killing a, a monster and eating it. If you feel yourself to be an important member of that tribe, like if you're the key hunter or if you're the caregiver, if you feel that you have a role within that tribe, if you feel that you're recognized and respected by that tribe, if you feel that you have strong peer bonds with members of that tribe, then like when you stop to have a wee behind a bush, you know that they're not going to walk off without you. 
that they'll they'll stay with you because you need to be with your tribe in order to be safe. If they walk off without you whilst you're having a pee behind the bush, then you're alone in this landscape and you're and you're vulnerable. If within that tribe you feel insecure, if you feel like you're maybe not important to anybody, that you're maybe not useful to anybody, that you don't have any skills that people value, then you're going to be frightened that when you stop for a wee behind a bush, they'll leave you and they won't remember that you're there. And so what you do is you constantly remind them that you're there by bleating out, nip, 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 because then when you stop to have a wee behind the bush, they'll notice it's gone quiet and maybe you stand a chance of survival. And that's what we're seeing in those children is a, is a sort of survival instinct of wanting to be a part of the tribe and the community for their own safety. And so what they're feeling is insecure. And when you recognize that the function of their behavior is to try and solve their insecurity if you try going i don't want any insecure children in my class you can't you don't get the finger waving and the hands on your hips you don't get the same feeling inside you you still mean it you're like i don't no i don't i don't want any insecure children i definitely don't want any insecure children in my classroom because i want my classroom to be a place where children feel safe and secure and stand on the tables like the dead poet society and like if you have any insecure children in your classroom please bring them into my classroom because i will nurture them and you know love them and it will be fine and and so if you are as you witness that behavior if you witness it as the emotional cause it changes your emotional landscape and that changes the response that you give and it changes the response that you that you get and you could have like imagine that child calling out and the two versions the one where you've got the I don't want any disruptive children and the one where you've got I I don't want any insecure children but they both have to follow the same behavior plan so the plan is when you call out you will get a warning on your first call out when you call out a second time I will put a mark on the board if you call out the third time you will be sent out of the room both of those teachers could perform that behavior plan to the letter and they will get a different outcome because they're feeling differently about the child. Because you were that child. You knew what those teachers meant and felt towards you. If they were against you, you knew it and you sat there against them. If a teacher who cared about you deeply had sent you out of the room, you would still have at some level known that they cared about you and it would have changed your response to them. And so having responsibility for our own emotional landscape is another factor in managing behavior within our classrooms. I think what what I try and do in and it literally you can go to any situation is what am I doing okay I'm going to this yeah and whatever I do in my life there is an outcome I'm going for and what a lot of people go into is I want to control yeah and so that might might be and let's say you've got to phone up your bank yeah, and you want to control the conversation. You want to let them know how upset you are with something. You got to what you want to let them know that you're in control and you have the power. And generally, if you're trying to do that, the other person's probably trying to do the same and you end up with conflict and it doesn't really go well. What I generally do is what is the outcome I want? And what is the least stressful way of achieving this? That's that's the route I found in my life generally lets me win everything even if i sit there and go right if i give them control of this meeting they can control it they can make all the decisions but this is what i'm going for and if i give them that element of control they'll feel like they've won and they'll give me what i want easily i will often do that there are times i'll let people speak and i'll just sit there be quiet 
and I've worked out this is the outcome and these are maybe a few things. But I think when, when you try and control, you lose sight of the outcome and you often will derail yourself trying to keep control rather than just taking a step back and going, right, so he's interrupting me. What is my outcome? What is my outcome? Well, I don't want him to feel rubbish. I don't want to get annoyed. I want him to be able to be remembered so we don't leave him alone when he goes behind the bush. <laughs> it's the same thing. It depends whether you're just looking to solve the problem that you're having. The problem that you're having is that child's communication or the problem that they're having, which is that they feel insecure. And depending on which one you're looking to solve, there are different strategies that you might choose. But I, I just think it's, it's sometimes it's having this control and just let, make sure everyone knows how you feel and how it's impacted you often just completely derails our original intention. Mm. And it's quite, and you can go into situations where I just sit there and go, oh, this isn't going to go. And you, I just, you can just recognize it. And then you watch it in films where you're going, and yeah, the anger's arrived, and yeah, it's going to go really badly from here. Then you sit there and going, but if they didn't do this, it would be a really short film. <laughs> <laughs> if they've got rid of the anger and just went down the logical, what's the outcome? They would, this would have been about literally a 15 minute film, and it would be really overpriced to see it in the cinema. I wouldn't have even finished my popcorn. But the anger comes in, and off it goes. Problem is, when that happens, it's kind of modeling for us what we do in the real world. And there's lots of things we see. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we've talked for quite a while. Yeah, I'm prone to that. <laughs> but I, I love it. I do love, I love listening and random segues into peeing behind bushes and random things <laughs> always come up with a podcast with you. I did New Kids on the Block on the previous one. But yeah, I think this century and we all kind of, we, I'm not a person who has these, these sensory difficulties as far as I'm aware and I will hope not in, but, the things you've talked about, I can sit there and I can think about times in my life. I can think there and think of situations I've seen where it's like a scale of that. It's like a small, much smaller version. And you can see that the sensory part goes in. And all the others, other processes you talked about, not making memories, losing memories, how that is actually, okay, so that kind of is probably the reason that happens it kind of makes sense without me even being in that situation. But I think the problem is, is when you're in that situation, you might have had this, listen, this amazing podcast by me and Joe, <laughs> mainly amazing because of Joe, not me. And you're going to go in and they've got a six foot scaffold pole and you're just going to go brain freeze. <laughs> and you will not remember to sit and talk calmly. You'll forget. And that's the problem. It is remembering this, having that opportunity to put it into practice when it's not a scaffolding pole it's a cocktail stick and the sort of it's not that but it, it, it's trying to remember this and get it embedded is really hard you'll probably get it wrong a couple of times but as long as you keep trying to work on that and improve we're going to win that's the hope that's the hope so thank you for coming on the show today thanks Joe. for having me always always welcome and i think i've got some links for you on this one as well so they'll be in the show notes and along with joe's contact details and you'll find the show notes on the website or wherever you listen to the podcast and as always thank you for listening if you haven't subscribed already please do subscribe you can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website which is www.thesendcast.com and please follow us on social media and tell everyone about us on social media on Twitter, we are at the Sendcast, and on Facebook, we are the Sendcast, and on Instagram, the Sendcast. 
And before we go, I'm going to remind you once more, as always, to check out the Training for Education website. You will find a number of guests on the Syncast, like Joe, our speakers at our virtual SEND conferences, or they've recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. We run a conference once a year, but those sessions are available forever. So it is whole school training. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. Bye.